In the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapter 25, starting in verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its bases, its stems, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself there shall be made four cups like almond blossoms, with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be made of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it. And the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be made of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And you see that you make and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Father, our world is often dark. It's filled with it's filled with evil. Sometimes it's in our own heart, leading us astray, leading us away from you. Sometimes it's the evil of other people afflicting us or afflicting our friends or family, those we love. Sometimes, Father, it's just the brokenness of nature. It's disease and and poverty and sickness. Father, we need you to light our world. You are its creator. You have given us natural light. But, Father, we thank you that you didn't leave us to that after our world became estranged from you. You've given us your light of your revelation through your word. You've given us Jesus as your true light to rescue us, to deliver us, to illuminate our path. Father, help us to rest in what he's done, to trust in what he's done, and to help bear that light into this world. Father, it is in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Jacob. I'm one of the deacons that serves here at Redeemer, subbing in for David as we continue to walk through God's tabernacle, which is a a sort of a mobile temple that was constructed as the people of God were leaving Egypt and going to the promised land, what was at the time called Canaan. And this, uh, this people was traveling. As they, they traveled, they lived in tents. And, and what God decided to do was to live in a tent among His people. This tabernacle reminds us that He dwells with His people. He dwells with the ancient Israelites and He dwells with us. But each aspect of the tabernacle, each bit of furnishing, each bit of decoration that goes into the tabernacle actually communicates an aspect of what it means to have God living with us. Last week, uh, Andrew Merker, our youth director, walked us through the, the table for bread of the presence. But it shows us that God is our provider. And this week, we walk across the otherwise dimly lit room inside the tabernacle. And we look at the, the lampstand that casts light on that provision. And we want to ask ourselves, what itself does this lampstand convey about God? Well, the lampstand, in several ways, is designed to remind us of God's creation. When God first made this world, it was pure, it was holy, it was, it was unified in purpose to glorify Him. Much like this lampstand, it's made out of pure gold and is, out of, is hammered out of one piece. But 
we know this isn't the way our world is anymore. It's been tarnished. It's been broken. Our, our ancestors, Adam and Eve, introduced into this world sin by disobeying God, and they fractured the relationship with Him. But the lampstand calls our, our attention, it calls the ancient Israelites' attention to the period of time before that relationship had been fractured. It's designed to remind them of, of the tree of life that rested within the garden. I believe we've got a graphic, and I want to show you the, the lampstand. Uh, you may know it by its more popular name, the menorah. But it is designed to look like an almond tree. And granted, it's a little bit stylized. You'll have to use your imagination. Uh, and I know we're not in preschool anymore, so it's hard. But, but you might notice that there are, especially in the description, that there are ornamentation on the lampstand that is designed to look like flowers, like almond blossoms. It's designed to call our mind to this place and to this time when God provided Adam and Eve a source of life. That if they would go to this tree and they would eat of it, they would live forever. But the lampstand doesn't just assert God's creative power on earth. He's not like one of the ancient pagan gods that only ruled over one realm. No, he's the God of the heavens as well. And he communicates this to us by, by these seven lamps. They represented the seven celestial bodies other than the stars that, that ancient man kind of kept track of. The sun, the moon, and the five planets visible to the naked eye. And, and I, I'm granted, if you're like me and you wanted to be an astronaut when you were a kid, you know all about space and you had space blankets. You know that's not how astronomy works, but, but what God is doing is he's not expecting his people to understand all of his creation, but he is condescending to them to communicate something about his creation. Namely, that He rules it. That He fashioned it. That He gives us light. And and by giving us light, He even gives us life that sustains us. But the, the lampstand isn't merely a pointer to the past. It's not merely a history lesson. It's also a pointer to a future time when God's mercy would break back into the world. When all things would be made new. By having them build this pure lampstand, God is giving the the Israelites a hope for the future. You might think of it this way. Um, I am very excited that Star Wars is coming out this year. Yeah. I am way too excited that Star Wars is coming out this year. I'm more excited than a grown man probably should be. A, a couple of friends and I, we've got a text message feed going. We're sharing uh, reaction videos and parodies of the trailer. We're excited. And it's really, it's really thrilling. You watch the trailer, uh, and if you're like me and you like Star Wars since you were a kid, you watch this trailer. At the end, Han and Chewie show up, and they say, "We're home." And this trailer promises you a better reality than itself. It promises you the first Star Wars movie since 1983's release of Return of the Jedi. Some of you will get that later. I'm a purist, but here's the deal: once. Once the Star Wars movie releases in December, I'm not going to watch the trailer again. I'm going to watch Star Wars. I'm going to buy it on iTunes, and I will watch Star Wars. And I will trick my wife and my kids into watching Star Wars with me. If you've got a three-year-old daughter, by the way, the way to get her to watch Star Wars is tell her there is a princess in it. She's down. But much like a, a movie trailer, the light of the slam stand points to a better reality than itself. It itself does not satisfy. It only lights up this one small room. It only illuminates 
this, this place for a few priests. So how does this spiritual light that, that this physical light of this lampstand point to? How does that break into our world? How is there something that, that so transforms our reality and our understanding of the world we live in come into this broken, dirty world? Well, if, if you're new here, maybe you're new to maybe you're new to this whole Christianity thing, maybe you're just new to looking at the Bible this way. Uh, but I want to give you a cheat code of how we think about the Bible. We don't think about the Bible as, um, as like an encyclopedia with a bunch of different entries and, and stories and laws and something like that. We actually think of the Bible as a grand narrative. It, it flows toward a point. It has a bunch of, different, um, bunch of different threads that tie together to form a tapestry. And that tapestry has at its focal point Jesus. And God's spiritual light is no different in this. It points to Jesus. Now, we didn't make this up either. This wasn't something we decided sounded cool on a staff meeting one day, and this is what we're going to roll with. This is actually how the Bible talks about itself. If you would flip forward in your Bible to to John 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If I can, skip forward to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is Jesus. And we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, God's, God's creative light beats back the dark void of the universe. It illuminates a literally dark space. But God's spiritual light, Jesus, pierces through the spiritual darkness that inhabits and and invades this world. He shines a light into our hearts to reveal to us our own spiritual blindness. We're often very ignorant of of how, how exactly our relationship with God is fractured and broken. We underestimate the damage that has been done. We don't necessarily see ourselves as estranged from Him and estranged from each other. But Jesus reveals that to us. Now, if he just did that, that would be very depressing. That would be very bad news. But Jesus also shows us a place where we can have hope and restoration. That by his power, we can be made one again, like the lampstand out of one piece of gold. And we can be made pure again. We can't do that in our own power. Often when we try to do that in our own power, we we make things worse. But Jesus does that out of his will and out of his goodness. And it is good news. It, it points to a day when we won't experience disease and evil and poverty and pain and separation from God anymore. All of this world will be righted because of what Jesus has done. The riches of the new creation will be bestowed to us. We'll experience the real tree of life again. And we'll never hunger, we'll not be in darkness. So Jesus is our light, but you may ask, what about the lampstand? That's where you started. What do we make of the lampstand? Well, to answer that question, let's look at another section of Scripture. It's also written by John. It's one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples when he was on earth. But some years after Jesus had died and risen from the grave and ascended into heaven, 
John was exiled by the Roman government to an island called Patmos. And and in this place, Jesus appeared to him. And, And John describes Jesus as appearing very kingly. He's arrayed in splendor and glory. He's He's holding in his hand seven stars and he's walking among seven lampstands. Now, this is as perplexing to John as it would be to us. But Jesus explains to John what's going on. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. These seven churches in Revelation, they they stand in as a, a representative of you, if you will, of the whole church. The whole church is to serve as a lampstand. It is designed to broadcast the light that is Jesus into this world. To share that as, as far as we can. Now, my, my fear is that sometimes what we do is we take a word like evangelism, for instance. If you've been around church world long enough, you've heard that word. And what we, what we do is we professionalize that. We make something like evangelism something only that paid church staff members or guys with seminary degrees or missionaries that are in a far field. Only they do that. And we sort of dismiss ourselves from any responsibility to be evangelists, to be sharing the light. There's none of that here in in Revelation. There's no division. Jesus isn't just talking to the pastors of these churches. He's talking to the whole church. That means, yeah, sometimes a paid staff guy gets to stand up in a pulpit and we get to preach and I get to help with community groups. But it goes beyond that. It means that a single mom who's working very hard to raise her kids, the the college student who's trying to navigate classes and figure out who they are in this world to find their niche, the the dad who works very hard to serve his wife and kids and, and tries to balance that, All of these people, all of them are called to evangelism. We're called to share the light. And this is sort of innate to to who we are, really. Christ followers help other people follow Christ. That's what we do. If, If you're a Christian, you help other people image him. Now, we kind of think that there's a cheat code sometimes, that there's a button we can punch in and we can... Uh, hack a person into becoming a believer in Christ, to following Him, to loving Him. I, I wish it was that simple, but I really don't think it is. Yes, there's there's good stuff to know. There's um, really important um, worldview issues that we should navigate together. But that's not generally how we're going to l- help a person who doesn't yet love Jesus or is exploring Jesus cross that line. But there are a few things that are important to remember. One, we don't do this alone. Do you ever feel like there's no way in the world you can convince everybody in the world to love Jesus? You probably feel like you can't even convince your friends to love Jesus, much less the whole world. Well, the good news is you're not alone. You are part of a church, part of a body of Christ. And if you've taken it seriously, you've plugged into a community group, you even have that as an avenue in which you can can connect people to that community. You've got a place that you can invite people who are exploring what it means to, to love Jesus, what Jesus has done. You've got other friends and, and family who do love Jesus who can join you in that. More fundamentally, though, you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. 
That's, that's part of your birthright as a believer. Ephesians 1.13 says that the Holy Spirit has sealed you. Jesus in John 6.63 says that he gives life. There's no better partner in showing the light of Jesus than the, the third person of the Trinity, very God himself, who gives life. Ultimately, you can't change somebody's heart. You can't uh, render their arguments moot. But it is the Holy Spirit who softens hearts. It is He who breaks through the cragginess that, that covers our souls and who gives life in that place. Which means you can pray. Honestly. Earnestly. For those whom you love who don't yet love Jesus. You can go to God seeking His face in prayer because He has power to transform lives in this way. Now everybody who loves Jesus has a story of how that came to be. You know where you were. You know what you were struggling with. And maybe you were a kid who was born in the church and you grew up and you've always loved Jesus. Great. You you still have navigated issues. And maybe you... Grew up in the church, a lot of West Texan kids are this way, and then you rejected it. You said, no, it's not for me, but God has called you back. He's pulled you back into fellowship with Himself. And maybe you had nothing to do with Christianity until later in life. But through some court chain of events, God has, has shifted your life. He's changed who you are. He's caused you to fall in love with Himself. Share that story. Be honest with that story. The, the issues you have dealt with are not all that different from the issues that those whom you love are dealing with. You really aren't that different at the surface. But the big difference, the big change, is that your hope is in a different and better place. The end of your story is better. You see, instead of the white-knuckling, vain attempts, the self-reliant attempts to fix your life, to put it back together, to clean it up, Jesus offers us Himself. He breaks in and he, he deals with our sin. He deals with our alienation from God. He deals with our tarnishment and our, our, our dirtiness. So the very best evangelistic spiel you can give very often is talking about how Jesus has rescued you. Now, this is important. Not talking about how you got your life back on track for Jesus. That's actually not the gospel. That's the opposite of the gospel. If you're talking about how you worked very hard and cleaned up your life to make God happy with you, that's not Christianity. That's something else. But when you, when you talk about how God has saved you, when he has entered into the muck and mire of your life and has rescued you through the work of Jesus, it, it not only conveys to people that they can be saved despite their situation, but it reminds you that you ought to worship the God who has loved you and pursued you and purchased you and bought you. He's done that out of His grace and His mercy. Now all of this happens in inviting somebody to community, telling our story, praying for someone. It happens in a context. We don't live in a bubble. Uh, we're not praying for hypothetical people. We are um, working with the people that we connect with on a most daily basis. The people we work with, the people we're friends with, the people that we, uh, we call family. These are the people that God has placed in our path. None of that's by accident. That is, that is sovereignly ordained. That is sovereignly set up. It is by His providence that He's put those people in your life. 
But I think what we tend to forget is that the closer, I should say it this way, what we tend to do is the closer a person is to us in a relationship, the less we feel responsible for that person. The less we feel like it's our job to share that with them. I think maybe because we're, we're fearful at times. And we don't remember that we have the Holy Spirit and we have other believers. But in, in my life stage, the way this kind of plays out is that we tend to forget that the people we're most responsible for discipling are our kids. We tend to farm our kids out to professionals to let them disciple our children. And look, we've got some great children's staff here. Uh, Andrew Merker is our youth guy. preached last week. Phenomenal dude. I always tell people I wish he was my youth pastor as a kid. Mr. Gary and Miss Karen love your kids exceedingly well. They want to teach them the Bible. But it's a mistake to think that that job ends with them. It, in fact, comes from you or comes to you. You've been given that job by God if you have kids living at home. That's a great honor. That means you get to tell your kids that they are loved and forgiven even when you have to discipline them. You get to pray with them as they're going to bed or over a meal. You get to read the Bible with them or a storybook Bible with them. You get to be on the hook for those hard theological questions like, so dad, I was getting used to this Jesus guy. What's the Holy Spirit? Like, what's he doing in this? You get to be the one who confesses your own sin and asks for forgiveness from your kids when you mess up. I'm pretty sure that that is going to be the primary way my kids learn the gospel. Dad coming to them and saying, I messed up. And Jesus forgives me. Would you forgive me? Now, this is a great honor. It doesn't require a, a seminary degree. It doesn't require you to be on paid staff. It does require you to be present, to be in your Bible, and maybe to read the occasional good theology book. But for the most part, it requires you just to care enough to be the lampstand for your kids. Now, I said that's my life stage. Your, your life stage may look totally different. You may be in a, a completely different place than I am. So what I want you to do this week, especially in community group, is pray about, talk about, think about what it means to be the lampstand in your life stage. What does it mean to share the light, the good news of Jesus, with people that surround you? And we might ask, what happens when the church, when we fail to be the lampstand that we are called to be? Well, if we continue on in the book of Revelation, we see that, that Jesus has John uh, write out seven letters to, to seven churches. And the first church he addresses in chapter 2 is, is a church in a city called Ephesus. He tells them, look, I, I see that you're working hard. I see that you're enduring suffering and persecution for my name. I see that you've got good doctrine. You're not listening to false teachers. And look, guys, at Redeemer, doctrine, theology, those are not dirty words here. We love those words. You've got a good theological question, we will bust out a whiteboard and a Bible and go to town. And that's fun. That's fun for us. But what is happening is that this church has fallen in love with its doctrine, in love with its works, in love with, uh, with its own victimization, more than it has fallen in love with Jesus. It's forgotten its first love. So they don't overflow with this love of Christ. They don't shine that forward into the world. My guess is they probably give out kind of an angry exterior. 
And that's tempting. That's tempting in a season like we're in, 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 in our spiritual religious life in America. It's tempting to put on this angry exterior and be mad at the world around us. But Jesus tells them, if you do not repent, in verse 5, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. You will stop being the church if you do not share the gospel. If you do not love God so much that it overflows into your love for other people. If you cease to shine this light into the world. Now, I know that sounds terrifying, but the good news, we have a great God who is worthy of much love. And he has loved us first. He has pursued us first. And because of that, we can overflow with that love that he pours into us. We can worship him so much. We can love him so much that it can't help but overflow into those areas of our lives, over into our friendships and our family and our work relationships and our neighborhoods. This love creates a, a, a love in our heart, a zeal in our, our, in our mouths for Jesus, for what He's done and who He is. And that's the sort of love that replicates itself, that changes lives, that changes people. Redeemer, may we be a people that overflow that sort of love, that share that love with those around us. That we would shine that love into the darkness like light from a lampstand. Let me pray for us, Redeemer. Father, we thank You. We thank You that You have broken into this dark world. That You have sent Your Son, Jesus, to radically transform our situation, to rescue us from our own spiritual blindness. We thank You that You give us understandable analogies for that that sort of radical transformation and giving us things like the lampstand. But Father, help us be a people that, that share that love well, that overflow with that. Help us be a people that, that can't help but talk about You because You are so amazing. You defy all of our understanding and You loved us even when we were at our darkest and our most dirty and our most broken Father, we ask that you would transform our city. You would transform our country. You would transform our world because of the love that your people have for Jesus. We love you. We praise you. It is in Jesus' glorious name that I pray. Amen.